before we jump into this episode, this is James from Fringe Voices. I just wanted to let you know about Anchor. Uh, Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. It's free, and they have plenty of tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. In addition, Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more places. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor, A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M to get started. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to this show, Fringe Voices. Today we welcome Ed Garcia of the publication Welcome to the Bronx. We have a good conversation exploring true affordability of housing, community land trusts as a strategy to defeat gentrification, and healthy food as a right for all people regardless of income. Thanks and enjoy the show. Hi, Ed. Uh Welcome to the show. Thank you for joining today. Thank you for taking your time. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. Thanks for having me. So the reason why I wanted to have you on the show today is because I feel like we share similar positive views of the Bronx. Mm -hmm. Um, Could you tell me uh, a little bit about why you started the Welcome to the Bronx publication? Um, Well, I started Welcome to the Bronx. Uh, It's actually been 10 years now. Um, It originally started as Welcome to Melrose because I was focusing on my neighborhood uh, where I grew up and I currently uh, live, which is the Melrose neighborhood in the South Bronx, because I was just tired of the negative stereotypes constantly uh, being portrayed about the Bronx in the media, um, everywhere you went to look up information online um whenever you whenever you search the bronx or the south bronx the first images that you would see in google search were always images from the 70s and 80s you rarely saw like the current reality of the bronx you know in in the early 2000s uh you know the turn of the century and everything you know all the hard work that that people had done to basically bring the bronx back from the brink so that's really like the reason I started to, you know, to do blog, you know, to, to blog about the neighborhood and, and eventually blog about the Bronx, I wanted to be able to just correct that narrative um, that that was incorrect for so long. Yeah, and I feel like it still somewhat persists to this day. That's why, I mean, I, I'm not a, a long, lifelong resident of the Bronx, but I've lived here for about 13 years. Yeah, And I know just even to this day, it seems to be changing somewhat more uh, for the positive uh, recently, but still, there I, I feel like that narrative still persists, and so I think we're both on the same wavelength of like let's bring this positive uh, message of the Bronx because there's a lot of hardworking people here that have positive stories that they need to tell, and there's also a lot of issues that are facing of why I started to read Welcome to the Bronx is because you posed. Uh, like you challenge some of the the mainstream issues that are facing the Bronx and the city in general. What do you feel like are some of the the pressing issues facing the Bronx right now? I mean, right now, probably the biggest issue that we're facing um, is, without a doubt in my mind, is gentrification um, and displacement. Mm. Um, 
you know, a lot of people, I get, I get a lot of heat for consistently talking about it, but it's the reality that we live in. You know, everyone's like, well, it's going to improve our neighborhoods. Well, that's not how you improve a neighborhood. We've already seen time and time again throughout New York City, throughout the country, uh, throughout the world, gentrification is an issue uh, where the existing residents uh, get displaced. Um, and if that's what making a neighborhood is better, there's something really wrong with that. Um and we've already shown that we can actually make our own neighborhoods better without gentrification. You know, we've been doing it for the last 30 years. Um, so now we have all these developers that are just piling, you know, literally like million and bi actually billions of dollars already into the Bronx um, to create housing. That's most, most of it is not for people who live here. It's to attract the newcomers is to bring people from Brooklyn and Manhattan to come here Uh you know, you have the borough president who says, hey, we need to retain our professionals, which is true. We do need to retain our, our own talent in the Bronx, but that's not what this housing is for. This housing is literally like a, a seismic shift in our neighborhoods of, of, of economics. Yeah, and I like that you brought up this point about uh, people in, in the Bronx have been sort of saving this area for over 30 years. Uh, it brings to mind this recent film that was on PBS. I don't know if you were able to check it out. I myself haven't been able to watch it yet, but it was called uh, The Decade of Fire, I believe. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, did, what What are your thoughts on that? What, like, just in general, like, um, the the message that it's sending? I mean, first of all, uh, I mean, I saw the, the film twice. I saw both screen, the first two screenings in the Bronx, and both times I actually cried. Uh, wow. I, I couldn't hold back my tears because it was reliving trauma. You know, it was reliving something that, that, that I lived through. And even though I wasn't directly impacted by it in the sense that, you know, like we never went through a fire in our building and we weren't displaced. Um, but this was what I was surrounded by growing up in the South Bronx. I was, I, you know, I grew up on a block where half the block was desolate. There were only like three buildings where people actually lived. The rest was abandoned or rubble. Mm. And that was pretty much everywhere I walked in the neighborhood. I, I, my first seven years, you know, of my life was living in Mott Haven on Tinton Avenue, between one forty ninth and one forty eighth, right near Southern Boulevard. And my trek to school, which was you know five six blocks north uh, to, to uh, St. Anselm's High School, was always walking through rubble, basically. You know, like just block after block of just like rubble or abandoned buildings, and. But I didn't see that as something wrong when I was growing up. It just, it was normal. You know, I I didn't see it. it wasn't until I started, you know, until I went to high school in the Northeast Bronx, um, where everything else was pretty stable, that I realized, whoa, this is not supposed to be like this. Um, and, you know, then to bring it back with what you, you know, what you were saying about, you know, 30 years, you know, of nothing being done, but now all of a sudden developers pouring money into it. You know, we always ask ourselves, you know, why now? Like, why are you coming now when we were struggling to do this on our own? Exactly. And I think, you know, to, to uh, take like a positive spin on this, even though this isn't a negative thing that we're talking about, this is a real issue facing residents of the Bronx. And, you know, like you mentioned throughout the world, um, I, I feel like Bronx residents are just hardworking people. How, how do you think we're going to persist through like these issues of gentrification and development? Um, do you see some positive coming up from residents that you would like to highlight? Uh, positive developments in terms of uh, development as like like, an, like a real estate development? No, po developments oh, is in terms of like 
things that residents, like actual residents of the Bronx, are doing to kind of combat these types of real estate development or gentrification? You know, right now, I mean, there's there's a group with South Bronx Unite, which I actually started with uh, when we were fighting against the uh, first direct move to the Bronx. Um, they're working on a community land trust, um, and community land trusts are really a concrete way where we can pool our resources and actually buy our own property and dictate the future of that piece of land uh, and develop it for the greater good of the community. Um, we just have to like get more of those going, th- you know, throughout the Bronx, but it's almost impossible to do. It's not impossible, but you know, it takes a lot of resources and, and collaboration with the city and, and, and whatnot, you know, to find properties where we can do this. Um, but overall, it's just a matter of education and educating our neighbors and, and our you know, small business owners about what's happening and what's going on and try to protect each other as much as we can. Um, basic initiatives is uh, like supporting small businesses more than, you know, more than we normally do. You know, try to support a small business before you even go into a retail chain. Uh, they are the lifeblood of our communities. Um you know, that's pretty much like on the ground action that we have and, and pressuring our local elected officials to try to do the right thing. Uh, just yesterday, you know, we spoke at the polls uh, with, uh, with the five questions that we had presented to us, you know, to change the city charter with uh, you uh, basically increasing the time for ULERP, which is what, what you have to go through, you know, with rezoning properties and, and, and lots. Uh, and right now it was rezoning is being used as a tool for gentrification. Hmm. So the fact that we can actually make this process a little longer can, you know, hopefully work to our advantage, you know, you know, if a developer sees that it's going to take way too long to rezone, you know, a neighborhood, you know, or put the brakes on it, then they might not be so quick to sell for a profit or another person might not come in to purchase that piece of property at speculative prices, you know, that are way above market, you know, current market realities. That's a good point. Yeah. And it also made me think that uh, that initiative that was on the ballot with that as well. And when you were speaking about community uh, land projects, speak a little bit more about that, because I'm, I'm definitely interested in this uh, idea and, and putting it into action like more. Uh, what what specifically could you tell people that may not be familiar with what it is? I mean, the community land trust, it's, it's you know, at, at the at the root of it, it's just basically a nonprofit that owns and develops uh, a particular piece of land, um, whether it's a building that it's that that's purchased by by a group by a nonprofit. Um, you know, it's basically it could be you and I pulling our resources with our neighbors. You know, instead of just one person buying uh, a piece of land or property, it could be purchased by all of us together, pulling our resources, and then as a group, we pretty much dictate you know what's going on. What's going, to, what's going to happen on that piece of land and generally community land trust, you know, they'll build uh, something that's going to actually benefit the community, whether it's true affordable housing. Um, and I always have to say true affordable housing because, you know, affordable housing in New York City is a myth while rents in these developments are affordable. I mean, when you look at the rents, comparatively speaking to the market, they are affordable. The problem comes in when uh, you have to, you know, when you qualify for these units. Um, with the area median income being inflated, which is not the true area median income of the neighborhood. So that's what I mean about true affordable housing in a community land trust, you know, that they, you know, you pull your resources, you're developing this plot of land, then you can create housing that's actually really affordable for local residents. Yeah, which makes a lot of sense, because like we're saying, I mean, I I mean, I I don't see myself the um, 
and maybe I'm wrong on this, but I don't see the Bronx becoming like the next Brooklyn within the next few years. I do feel like it is a best, like we're, we're continuing to talk about like hardworking people, working class people. This is like our last uh, place to like where there is affordable housing. So um, one thing I wanted to also talk about is like, do you, what what are actually what are your thoughts on that? Do you think we're going to be the next Brooklyn? I hope not. <laughs> I know. You know, I hope we're not going to be the next Brooklyn. Um, I'm at a point in my life and, and and experience that I don't. I used to be a little sure about that, and I can actually unequivocally say no. But the way things are moving right now in Port Morris and and Mount Haven, I mean, at the very least, that sliver of 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 the Bronx is is probably going to be you know pretty much the next Brooklyn, as much as I hate to say that. Um, things are moving way too rapidly there. Right now, we have about 4,500 units to 5,000 units either in construction or being planned. Wow. Um, a good chunk of it is affordable housing, but affordable housing, what a lot of people don't realize is that affordable housing is not permanent. They expire, mm. you know, unless it's rezoned uh, after this, you know, this after the city adopted the mandatory inclusionary housing, um, which means that any land that is rezoned, um, a certain percentage of, of the uh, units have to remain permanently affordable. Um, but that's not the case for anything that was already uh, rezoned. And the waterfront in the South Bronx, the uh, Mont Haven, the lower concourse area that was rezoned in 2009, that was you know way before this ever happened. So none of those affordable units, unless they're actually trying to rezone uh, to get uh, higher density, are going to be permanently affordable. So... Um, it doesn't matter. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, if exactly. they build a thousand affordable, you know, units, you know, the only exception right now is um, Bronx Point, which is where the uh, the hip hop museum is going to go on 149th Street, right at the river at the oh, bridge. Yeah. Um, that particular development is slightly over a thousand units, of which I believe it was like roughly 600 of those units are going to be permanently affordable, which is practically unheard of because it's over 50% of the development. Wow. Um, and then the rest are going to be affordable or market, you know, mixed. Um, and that's probably like, that's literally the only development that, that I've seen in, in New York city that has that high, uh, of permanently affordable units. Um, but just on the other side of the bridge, uh, in, in the Bronx, you know, just south of that bridge, there's a development that is, uh, in the plannings, that's going to be about 22 to 2,300 units of which only 30% are going to be affordable. Wow. And there's nothing... Not they don't have to remain permanently affordable because that plot of land was rezoned, you know, way before MIH came into play. So I see what you're saying. Yeah, I, I, I think you have a little more perspective on what's going on in the in the South Bronx specifically too about this development. So uh, I used to feel sure about you know we're not going to be the next Brooklyn, but it does sound like it is moving pretty fast. It's uh, lightning speed. <laughs> Yeah, which is a little scary. So this is why, you know, it's like you were saying, it's important to talk to our fellow, our neighbors and and reach out to people. And I think the initiatives like you were mentioning of the South Bronx Unite, these community land trusts, uh, people can get together on this. Speaking of like um, these these like um, issues that are being challenged, what who's like first? I have like two questions. So. And it might sound kind of generic, but who do you feel like inspired you to do this type of work? Or it could be a group of people because it's not, it's, it's hard work and it, it's, it's, uh, it takes a lot of motivation to get up every day. And, 
you know, face these issues head on because a lot of people will just go into their, their daily job and, you know, just grind away at that. So first, so the first question is who, like, and who inspired you to do this type of work or what got you into this? Um, and well, I mean, yeah, what do you feel? I, I mean, it all, it all started happening at once. Uh, you know, when I started writing, uh, you know, blogging on, on, you know, Melrose, it all happened because I was transitioning from full-time employment to working from home uh, because I'm very, I've been very open about my journey. I was going through uh, really severe panic attacks and anxiety that I could not work at my office. So I mm. transitioned to working from home, you know, we made a deal where, you know, Hey, you work from home. And I find myself with all this free time. I started writing and I didn't think that it was going to catch on. And next thing you know, within a month, I was already being picked up by different newspapers and, uh, by the end of the year, my first year, uh, the New York Times and the New York New Yorker magazine. Um, wow. And all of a sudden, like, I realized that I had this voice. So, you know, like, let me try to use it. So, you know, that's when I started highlighting my issues. So I didn't really have one specific person. But the more I started working in, 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 in you know, through my writings, I started seeing so many other organizations that have been doing a lot of this. Uh, for example, uh, Nos Quedamos, We Stay, Melrose. Um which was uh, founded by Yolanda, the late Yolanda Garcia, uh, who just had a, a, new, a brand new park renamed uh, named for her. Um, she basically, practically single-handedly, saved the Melrose from gentrification before even Harlem would have been gentrified. Because New York City had this grandiose plan in the '80s to transform the area between 149th Street and 161st Street into a haven for the middle class and upper middle class with condos and and homes and whatnot, you know, because there was the, the population in Melrose had shrunk from 1970 to 1980 from about 25,000 people to about 3,500 people. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, it was that severe. And this is the neighborhood I grew up in. And you would walk for block again, you would walk for blocks. Uh, you know, after we lived in Mount Haven in 1982, my family moved uh, to a new development that had opened up in Melrose. And it was a haven in there. But you know, you're still surrounded by burnt out lots, uh, not many places you can go to. But Yolanda Garcia in the late 80s uh, to early 90s, she caught wind of this before, you know, this happened, this, these plans from the city before the Internet. Um, and she was able to organize the community and fight the city on the development. Um, and Nos Quedamos, that's what it means in Spanish. It means we stay, which is the name of the organization. Mm -hmm. uh, they basically said, you know, hey, you know. You, you know, any development that's not with us, you know, or, or done by us is not for us. So they eventually forced the city's hand to create a vision that was centered around the community and what the community wanted to see. So they're, you know, a huge inspiration um, because they ended up basically bringing Melrose back from, you know, 3,500 people to now it's, you know, as a 2010 census, it's the uh, second fastest growing neighborhood in, in New York City. Oh, wow. Um, 2010 is probably going to be the same thing because we still have like thousands and thousands of more units, uh, that have come online again, you know, they are affordable. Uh, so we know that they're not going to be permanently affordable, but, um, you know, because of Nos Quedamos, they were able to do it right. You know, they turned the neighborhood around without gentrification. Um, so they're, you know, they're, they're just one example of, you know, some of the people that are huge inspirations to me. Because it's again, it's not just one person. You know, Yolanda started it, but the people who continue to do that work today 
uh, inspired me to do this and inspired me to be able to tell their stories as well and make sure that people know what they're doing um, because it's important that we all know this, that we can gain some knowledge of you know how they did it and, and hope for our own neighborhoods. Exactly. Yeah, I'm actually, I like to think that I know uh, a lot of, about the Bronx, but I actually wasn't aware of that, that, that what happened in the 80s. So I appreciate you bringing that up. Um, I do feel like we've had a good conversation about, you know, your publication, Welcome to the Bronx. We've talked about some issues facing the Bronx. I'm sure we could talk for hours about <laughs> many issues facing the Bronx and the city. Um, but I do, uh, I know we were both uh, somewhat limited on time. So I wanted to wrap it up with uh, things of what, so I, I named this uh, show the fringe voices and, uh, kind of like to have like people with radical ideas, which I'm sure, you know, that you have as well. What do you think is one like radical or fringe idea that people may not know about, but they should know about? Uh, well, I mean, one of the, one of the things is just it's 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 silly that it's radical but uh it's you know we need to take control of our of our health in the bronx um mm. as as you know the bronx is is uh the worst of all new york, new york state counties not just new york city but new york city new york state we come in dead last the 62nd county uh with like we have the worst health outcomes when it comes to diabetes uh cardiovascular obesity uh you name it, you know, we all, we have it here. Uh, and it's, and it's ironic because in Hunts Point, we have the largest food distributions since center in the world, not just the country, but in the world, That's the right. food for the Northeast, basically everyone in the Northeast, they, their food comes through here. Some of the best quality foods that you can get, the best foods that people are eating on the Upper West Side, in the village, in Soho, in Westchester, in Connecticut, and Greenwich, it's coming right through the Bronx, but our people don't have access to that. Mm. And that's a big problem. Instead, what do we have? We have an oversaturated of fried saturation of fried foods. People with limited, you know, economic means, you know, if you're gonna spend five dollars, you know, and your options are, you know, a salad. That'll just feed me or $5 special at McDonald's or, you know, a local fried chicken place where I can feed maybe two or three people. What are you going to choose? You're going to choose the, you know, the one that's going to feed more people. So, you know, we need to have more, like just more options, you know, to, you know, to expose people to better eating uh, and also not make it so expensive. Um, and there are ways to do that, but, you know, sadly, like, Capitalism being what it is, uh, you know, the fried food places are always going to win out because, you know, you know, they know their market. Exactly. And, you know, it's kind of funny that you mentioned uh, this idea of food because this is like the years ago, I actually uh, started up a number that would um, help with bringing more affordable food. I mean, I had like a basic idea of it at the time. I didn't fully develop it, but. Like, I do believe this is a very important issue for not only the Bronx, but, you know, for other just areas of the world where working class people are just trying to survive. And I think that food is a right. I don't feel like healthy food should be like a privilege. Um, so I appreciate you bringing that issue up. And I know there's a few organizations interested. Uh, I know like La Finca del Sur is, is yep. you know, one organization. 
uh i know there was a woman working she has like uh, a mobile i think yes that's uh tanya fields and actually i saw her the other day um she has uh, it used to be called the black project and now it's the black feminist project yeah and she has her farm um right on simpson street uh one block south of the train station um and it's actually a beautiful farm she has dozens of chickens there uh laying eggs and you know she's working the plot of land and you know with, with the community she's able to feed the community and not only that but like feed their minds and teach them you know try to liberate them from that you know that cycle of unhealthy eating and and, and just taking control of your food supply and i actually met tanya because we used to have uh, a food co-op in the south bronx yeah i remember that it was on the or something wasn't yep, third it? Avenue, 158th Street. Yep. and uh you know we were all members of that and uh kind of miss it i wish we can get it i know <laughs> You know, maybe the time is right now to resurrect it. Who knows, right? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, definitely appreciate you highlighting some of these important issues that are facing the Bronx. Again, like we said, we could probably speak for a long time about these issues and then also some potential solutions for these problems. But I think we were able to highlight uh, a few. Um, and where can people find you on the Internet if they're not familiar with where to find your work? What's the best places for people to find you? Uh, you can find me on Facebook uh, under Welcome to the Bronx, and that's uh, Welcome with the number two instead of T-O. And that's the same thing on on, uh, on Instagram, on Twitter as well. It's uh, Welcome to uh, the BX and uh, my website, which is WelcomeToTheBronx.com. And you can spell that either way with the two or, or with the T-O. It'll go straight to the website. Awesome. Thank Appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks for coming on. I would like to explore more of these issues in the future, so let's bring you back for another podcast. Sounds good. All right, thank you. Appreciate it. Anytime.